Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from The Charmed Life of Matt Draper, From Riverboat Gambler to Frontier Banker, written by John Rayburn. In 1866, Matt Draper is full of ambition, but without money or family to help him succeed. On the western frontier of an ever-expanding America, Toiling as a riverboat gambler seems like the best option to raise enough capital to realize his dream of opening a small-town bank. Though gambling is lucrative for Matt, it is also an unsavory enterprise fraught with danger. Fortuitously, before any harm befalls him, Matt and his friend Charlie discover an abandoned Confederate gold cache in a fake grave, which gives him the stake he needs to leave the treacherous gambling world behind. From then onward, his life's purpose becomes evident as all roads lead to Neosho, Missouri, where he opens the bank and becomes a major influence on its growth and prosperity. Matt's exciting and uplifting saga captures the day-to-day reality of life in the tumultuous post-Civil War era, including the hardships, relative lawlessness, an indomitable spirit of settlers bent on creating a good life for themselves and their neighbors. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from The Charmed Life of Matt Draper. Chapter 1 Being caught up in the middle of a bank robbery is not a very pleasant situation, especially when it's your bank and you're the only one there to face three armed robbers. Even more so when one of the bandits has you flat on your back, straddling you with a forty-four revolver practically stuck up your nose. To make it worse, he growled, I'm going to change your face, pretty boy. He was about to do just that when I told him, You better look down first. Surprised, he glanced downward and saw a two-barrel derringer pointing just inches away from his crotch. If you make just one tiny little move, I'm going to cause serious damage to your manhood. Now I suggest you put that gun down right here alongside me. Naturally, he did just that. He got up off me when I suggested he do so. I picked up his weapon and steered him toward the door to where his fellow thieves were waiting for him. When they saw me with his gun prodding his ear, they wheeled their horses and plunged down the dusty street like proverbial bats out of hell. I then marched their left-behind buddy toward the jail and Sheriff Bull Matthews. I quickly told the lawman what had happened and that the prisoner very likely could tell who the others were and where they might be headed. That turned out to be the case, and a quickly organized posse not only nabbed the fleeing robbers, but almost got to their hideout before they did. This resulted in the recovery of my missing funds and provided a feather in the hat of Matthews. If any lawman ever deserved favorable attention as he followed the line of duty, it would be Bull Matthews. With him, it was pretty much what was right was right, and anything else had to be brought into the proper way of doing things. His size helped. He must have been six feet two or so, with a rock-solid body that probably scaled in around 230 pounds. His arms looked like they were made of oak, and I remember one time when he broke up a saloon brawl by kind of reaching down and literally picking up one of the battlers by the scruff of the neck and holding him at arm's length, stated flatly, That'll be enough. The half-drunk cowpoke hadn't had his fill of punching the other guy around, and he snarled, Oh, yeah? and took a swing at the sheriff. The blow bounced off his chiseled jaw, and Bull shook him like a rag doll, and quietly repeated, That'll be enough, I said. 
The message got through to the rowdy ranch hand this time, drunk or not, and he subsided sensibly when he finally realized what he was up against. All this time, Bull hadn't raised his voice or made a threat, but you could tell by the glint in his eyes he wasn't about to put up with any more foolishness. It was that sort of action that kept getting him elected. Throughout the West, lawmen would come and go, either because they didn't stick to the letter of the law or because they ran up against unscrupulous citizens or high-binding ranchers who established little area kingdoms of their own. As for his name, I never did hear what he'd been christened, but bull he was and bull he remained, and never was a name better served. I did eventually learn why he stuck so doggedly to the straight and narrow path, but the information had to come from somewhere else because he never uttered a word about it. Seems his daddy was a train robber. Not much of a background for a sheriff, but it was all part and parcel of what made him what he was. His old man rode high for a while, but eventually the odds caught up with him and he was gunned down while trying to pull off a daring raid on a train making its way through a desolate middle part of Kansas Territory. It appeared everything was going his way, but an organized group of lawful citizens had somehow gotten wind of the proposed robbery. It happened through the area where farmers had used limestone posts for their fences and the waiting riders had dug in behind hillocks near the tracks on a rise that meant the engine would be slowing down enough for the attackers to catch up and board the baggage car. Well, the intended theft didn't work out when the informal posse stormed out of their hiding places with their horses kicking up clouds of dust in the ruggedly arid farmland. Bull's dad tried to shoot his way out of the ambush, but the guns outnumbered him and he was killed. His mama hadn't known about her husband's sideline, and not long after she died from what everyone figured was a broken heart. Bull, or whatever name they called him back then, decided the rest of his life was going to be devoted to putting her shame to rest. He was just a young one, but he was already growing into the man he was going to be. Early on, he put in a stint as a deputy under a lackadaisical sheriff and figured he could do a better job himself than the duly elected character. In spite of his shortcomings, though, the sheriff was pretty well entrenched in a relatively law-abiding town, and citizens didn't see any particular reason to make a change. So after deciding that was the way things were going to be, Bull decided to head out and do things his own way. Doing wasn't as easy as saying, however, and tough times were ahead. Of course, he wanted to know how I'd turned the tables on the trio of bandits that were involved in the robbery at my bank. Well, Matt Draper, that was good work. How'd you pull it off? I briefed the story down and said I barely managed to get the drop on the bad guy. I figured there was no reason to tell him about the sleeve gun arrangement I had because I might need it again sometime, and I didn't want word to get out. It was a device I had adopted back when I was doing some gambling on riverboats. It's a sort of small pouch that fits up under my sleeve, and a spring-like gadget lets the small pistol release to my hand when I press it in a certain way. It had been a very beneficial tool when sometimes confronted with inevitable card sharps aboard the paddle wheelers. Some of those guys would cheat their grandmothers and are also apt to resort to gunplay if things don't go their way. My derringer bailed me out a number of times and, and my good luck led to winning some pretty good pots. That's part of how I was able to start my own bank I was planning somewhere out west after the bloody war between the states wrapped up in 1865. Poker winnings alone wouldn't be enough to start a good-sized bank, but fortunately a friend and I hit the jackpot. Well, first, let me explain about Under the Hill at Natchez, Mississippi. This was a mighty rough territory in those times. 
It was populated by cutthroats, out-and-out thieves ready to take advantage of anyone who might have any cash, no matter how small the amount might be, plus riverboat gamblers like me, along with ladies of the night, and just about any other kind of unsavory characters. Most came up to the dusty silver street that dominated the most notorious port to be found anywhere on the river. They came up from the docks where boats of all types tied up. Whatever they were seeking, they were bound to find, whether it be illicit love, no-limit five-card stud, cheap whiskey, or knock-down drag-em-out fights. The latter were pretty much considered normal for the time and place, and it wasn't unusual to have one or more murders a night with no way to count all the muggins and shooting scrapes. To say it wasn't a very desirable place would be putting it mildly with the rabble-rousers of every description frequenting the bars and brothels strung out along Silver Street. It certainly wasn't the kind of place I wanted to stay for very long, but the gambling winnings kept me around to help me build up the stake I was planning to use to start my bank. Fortunately, my friend, Charlie Winters, stumbled across an old-timer with what first seemed like a wild tale. The fact he was sprawling drunk in the street when Charlie pulled him out of the way of a passing wagon, loosened his tongue, and the mumbled words he managed to say were intriguing, to say the least. Normally, it was the sort of thing that you'd listen to and kind of put it aside because it was too much to think it amounted to anything. However, I had learned to trust the thoughts of Charlie. I'd run across him when the steamboat I was doing my gambling on at the time pulled into Memphis. There was a lull in the gambling during time in the Riverport, and I made my way into the town part for some exploration and mostly just wandering around out of curiosity. I walked past a little narrow passage between a couple of buildings, and spotted a couple of hard cases who had backed a guy into a corner and were starting to work him over. It didn't look like any kind of a fair fight, so I decided to even up the sides and, and made a run at one of the men. I blindsided him with a low hit around the knees and swung a fist against the back of his neck while he was going down. That enabled the one who was in the process of being beaten to get a second wind, and he kneed the other dirty dog between his legs, and, and when he'd been over in pain, he followed up with a crunching two-handed chop to his head and shoulders. The one I had tackled got up a little groggy, and before he could make another move, I slammed him against the wall and busted him right on the snoot, and he went down like a polack steer. By now, the other battle was also just about over, because the fellow I had befriended delivered a clinching punch of his own. So, that's how I met Charlie Winters. It was a simple enough start, but I had bailed him out of a jam with no other reason in mind besides trying to make it a fair fight. He had been waiting for the very boat I had arrived on, had won a little stake in an onshore poker game, and was determined to try his luck as the paddle-wheeler made its way on down the river. I told him that was my stock in trade and suggested it might be a pretty good idea to join forces. One reason, of course, was to fend off any crooked gamblers we might encounter, another to back up each other in the event things reached the physical stage, like what had just happened. Now and then, good things just sort of fall in place, and that was the case this time. We took an immediate liking to one another, and the thought we might make a pretty good team turned out to be right on target. We had a couple of other run-ins as the boat steamed on down toward New Orleans, and our combined efforts handled each situation in more or less the same manner we had tamed that pair in the Memphis alleyway. We had a couple of battles in New Orleans itself and managed to get by with nothing more than a few scrapes and bruises. It made our relationship more solid than ever as we eventually boarded another steamboat headed back up the Mississippi the way we had come. We got as far as the Natchez settlement when we had a notion there might be some easy pickings and made a decision to see whether we could fleece some not-so-innocent lambs. 
All this had made our companionship more solid with each passing day, and we were fully prepared to stand shoulder to shoulder in whatever kind of mess might present itself. So that's why I was more than willing to listen to the words Charlie had heard from the old booze hound. They had to do with what the sot called a gold mine. That wasn't the literal fact as it turned out, but it was close enough. He had accidentally come across his treasure in nearby wilderness, and the gist of his verbal meandering was that he didn't want any part of any riches like that, wouldn't know what to do with it. In halting fashion, he gave vague directions, and Charlie and I figured it couldn't hurt to at least explore the possibility the old guy might know what he was talking about. He did, as it turned out, but it took us a heck of a lot of poking around before we eventually found what he described. We figured we'd better try to do our searching as quietly as possible. One day I'd go out with a fishing pole and settle in alongside a small stream and do some looking here and there while the cork was bobbing around. If I happened to actually get a bite, I'd haul in whatever took a fancy to my bait, usually a worm, and if the catch was a keeper, take it back to our digs and fry it up for supper. On some other outing, Charlie would just take a casual walk somewhere out where we thought we might find what we were looking for. He'd find a nice shady spot and lean back against a tree or something, pull his hat pretty much down over his eyes and apparently take a snooze. All the time, though, he was given the once over to the terrain, hoping to spot some sign that matched up with what the old geezer had told us. We weren't having much luck and were starting to feel it was just a waste of time and that it would just be a made-up story that came out of a brain pretty well soaked with rock gut. But Lady Luck was on our side, and one day while I was just wandering around with no apparent destination in mind, I happened to spot a peculiar-looking opening that first looked like it was just an uprooted old oak tree. A closer look disclosed that just maybe someone had decided it could serve as a pretty good hiding place with a little elbow grease applied. It could be the mine or whatever it was we were seeking. But it was too soon to be sure about much of anything. I decided I had been in the area long enough and didn't want to attract any attention, so I headed on back the way I'd come. I told Charlie I didn't know for sure, but it looked like I might have found something of interest, maybe even a mine, and I emphasized the maybe part of it. We waited until dusk, when any prying eyes might be more engaged in the wild nighttime activities along Silver Street. When we figured it was safe to do some more exploring, I told Charlie where I'd been and headed him that way. I trailed along some distance behind, serving as kind of rear guard. Finally, we got through some tall weeds and went along a rocky section that led to where we figured to see if this could just be a mine. What we found wasn't actually a mine at all, but a cave of sorts, more like a small hole that took some digging to determine whether we'd found whatever it was. Whoever had stashed something there must have been in some kind of a hurry because the spot was pretty well concealed with all the weeds and rocks and a small cave-in that was old enough, looking that it had to have happened quite a spell back. Can't amount to a lot, we figured, and I had sprained a thumb on one of the old roots, which didn't improve my mood much. Charlie was persistent, though, and managed to break up a couple of the big dirt clods. All of a sudden, that caused some of the dirt to give way, and we doggone near fell out of our boots when we could suddenly see what looked like an ideal hiding place. It was enough to make me at least momentarily forget about my sprained thumb. We pulled out knives and began clearing out some of the accumulated debris. Gradually, though, our enthusiasm began to die down because there wasn't a sign of anything in particular, just a hole with nothing in it now, if there had ever been at all. Disappointment can sure calm you down with a big dose of discouragement going along with it. We just kind of sat back on our haunches, looked at one another, and took on a what-do-we-do-now. We're both pretty positive thinkers generally, and in a bit I suggested... Maybe we can get that old drunk to come up with some other piece of information. 
Charlie went along with the idea, and we headed back into the town area and looked up and down and around until with a touch of luck we found our quarry, flat on his fanny and leaning back against a building, looking about half asleep. We went up to him, and Charlie bent over to say something to him, but reared back for a moment and held his nose. Hoo-wee, he's drunk as a skunk and smells about as bad. But we had come to learn more if we could, and Charlie said, Hey there, remember me? You told me about your mine, and we went looking for it, and didn't do much good, so I was wondering if you can tell me anything else, maybe better directions. The poor fellow looked up, shook his head like he was trying to get his eyes in focus, kind of belched and answered, Meth, meth, meth dust, and completely passed out. There wasn't much point in trying to bring him to because it would have been a lost cause, so we figured we might as well call it a night and try to get more information tomorrow, if he sobered up any. Either that or try to figure out what he was trying to tell us. We went to our bare-bones cabin and after some tossing and turning, managed to finally get to sleep. Waking early, an idea struck me. You know, Charlie, what he was saying, you know, that Methodist bit. I know there's a Methodist church up on the bluff from here, and I think I'll take a meander up that away and see if maybe that preacher could possibly decipher the meaning for us. So that's what I did, while Charlie headed toward where the drunk had been the previous night. I explained a little to the preacher without giving away any gold mine possibility and wondered if there was any other kind of Methodist church anywhere in the parts, maybe one where some traveler might have hid something valuable. He didn't even hesitate. Oh, sure, if you're looking for something like that, you could always include Rocky Springs on your list. That was a pretty thriving community at one time on the old Natchez Trace, built back, I think church records show around 1837 or so, it didn't amount to a great deal, but a circuit-riding preacher would include it on his rounds maybe once or twice a month. If someone had anything valuable, they might think of that neighborhood as a fairly safe place to stow it. There was an awful lot of disruption outside city boundaries, with wild frontiersmen not only selling off goods, but raiding others doing the same thing. So the Rocky Springs Methodist Church was probably figured about as safe a place as you could find anywhere in this part of the country. It's not a great number of miles up the trace, so it wouldn't hurt to take a look. I thanked him and headed back to tell Charlie, and I met him coming my way about halfway up the hill. He had a hangdog look on his face, but before I could ask if there was a problem, he looked up and sadly told me, Oh, Matt, I found that old fella, and oh, me, he, he's dead. He didn't make it through the night. I shook my head with joint concern before I told him I think I might have at least come up with a clue. We talked it over and decided we might as well give it a try. It would be wasted effort, but there was no way of knowing. Next day, I bought a wagon from a discouraged farmer who had thought to try his hand at one of the poker tables. With the experienced gamblers figuring out they had a sucker, it wasn't long before they cleaned him out and he didn't have much left but the clothes on his back. I paid him enough for the wagon for him to head homeward with enough of a grub stake he wouldn't be completely down and out. To give him his due, he had enough sense to leave and not try his luck at the tables anymore. He was honest about it, and he said he learned his lesson. We put together some food stuff and found a good team of horses at a stable where we had our saddle horses. My horse was a beautiful bay gelding and we had shared quite a bit of time and adventure together. His name was Champ and he was already showing high interest as he seemed to know he was going to be getting out of the somewhat limited grazing area back of the stables. While we were there making preparations, I noticed a rectangular box of some kind back against a rear wall and asked the stableman about it and offered to buy it. He said, no need for that. It was left behind by some freighter, and I ain't got no use for it, so go ahead and take it. It's got some kind of thin metal lining inside, something I guess he put it in to keep things dry. Ought to be useful. 
With what I had in mind, he was probably right. Charlie and I borrowed a hammer and nails and a couple of fairly wide leather straps and proceeded to get that box secured in place underneath the wagon bed and just under the seat where it would look like just part of the bed and wouldn't be noticeable hanging down. We might never need it, but if we happened to find what we were after, it could come in handy. So with all the various details handled, it was time for us to head out onto the old Natchez Trace Trail. This had pretty much been a main thoroughfare in its day, winding its way through thick forests, cypress swamps, hills studded with rocks, and often accompanied by disease and occasional unfriendly Indians, either Choctaw or Chickasaw, who used the trail basically for trade among themselves. They had just done what came naturally, along a trail that had been blazed long before their time by bison and other animals moving from salt licks to the northeast and trampling their way to grazing lands near the big river. When steamboat culture arrived on the scene, the trace turned obsolete for travelers and had been pretty much abandoned something like almost 40 years before we were there. There had been occasional Union troop movement along parts of it during the war that had just ended, but no skirmishes to amount to much of anything, so we figured we should have no trouble while we did our searching. We had no real idea what to expect, but we were counting on it consuming a considerable amount of time sashaying around trying to find what might be there. And that was the key because might be there was all we had to go on. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from The Charmed Life of Matt Draper. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.